Vladimir Putin, a man of little political experience but a long career in espionage. President Vladimir Putin has issued a chilling warning that he will do everything in his power. Russian relations have been severely damaged this past year by disagreements. Putin blasting the United States for behaving rudely, irresponsibly, and unprofessional. People in the West simply do not understand. Russia's invasion must not go unanswered. Long before Vladimir Putin had become a living Bond villain, long before he invaded Ukraine, and long before the West became so fascinated with what he really wants, I was just a young reporter setting off for Moscow in the fall of 2009. Putin had just stepped aside after two terms as president and appointed Dmitry Medvedev to take over the post. Technically, Putin was just the prime minister, but he was still very clearly the center of the Russian political universe. He had built what he called the vertical of power, in which all decisions and power flowed from him. I was still new to writing about Russia and needed help understanding Putin. So I read a bunch of books, I developed a bunch of sources, but most importantly, I talked to this guy. Okay, so let's start with you telling us who you are, your name. Okay, my name is Michael Yaffe, and I was born in Russia. In 1959. Wait, hold on. Oh, so you're, you're Michael Yaffe, and oh, who are you? Uh, I'm your father. <laughs> <Fajra>. <laughs> My dad turned out to be an enormous help. He hadn't kept super close track of Russian politics since we left Moscow in 1990. But that didn't matter. He knew Putin. Not personally, of course. But he knew who Putin was in a way that most foreigners didn't. One of the reasons I wrote this story and that we're doing this podcast is that I learned all of this from you growing up, and when I moved to Moscow and began reporting on him, you were always my main translator of Putin. And you'd be like, oh yeah, here he's doing this. He's intimidating this guy. With his words, he's saying this, but he's doing that. Or like, here he's picking on the biggest guy to kind of raise his status, blah, blah, blah. And other foreign correspondents didn't have this extra translation key. And, and other Soviets, right? Other people from this space, they see it immediately. There is a German saying that in every person you can see their uh, childhood room. So we grew up pretty much in the same circumstances, where he's a few years older than me. We grew up after World War II in the Dvor. The Dvor. The word just means courtyard in Russian, but to a Russian speaker, it is evocative of a whole universe. It was the space where so many Soviet kids grew up. Kids like my father, and kids like Vladimir Putin. It was where they learned the social code of Soviet society. That weakness is unforgivable, that strength is power, that loyalty is how you survive, and that life is a zero-sum game. Back in the U.S., people always saw Putin in one of two ways. Either Putin the KGB operative, or Putin the judo master. Of course, he was both of these things. He took judo incredibly seriously. He saw it as more than a sport or a way to fight. He saw it as a philosophy. And like judo, the KGB had taught him some more tricks. How to lie, how to extract information, how to be whatever you wanted him to be. But to people like my dad and other Soviet baby boomers, to everyone who had ever lived in the Soviet Union or in the post-Soviet space, Putin was something else entirely. He was the punk from the Dvor. He was the street urchin, all grown up. 
They all had this extra lens to see Putin, to understand him, that Westerners just didn't. His gestures, his words, his tactics, they are all immediately understandable to former Soviets as the ways of a Soviet post-war kid who, like most everyone born back then, had grown up in the Dvor, the urban courtyard. They knew because they had all grown up with someone like him or grown up just like he did. I'm Julia Yaffe. This is About a Boy, the story of Vladimir Putin. Chapter one, the ghosts. It's really important to remember how much the Soviet Union sacrificed during the course of World War II. The spirit of that suffering, it sort of hovered always. It never went away. Over the course of Putin's presidency, he has basically turned the biggest national trauma into Russia's equivalent of a national religion. He's the sort of the late child from a traumatized family. He's either on the throne or six feet under because these are the rules that he himself grew up with. Putin was born into a country and a family ravaged by war. It's hard to explain to Americans just how deeply the trauma of World War II and the Soviet Union defined the country's post-war generations. That is true even today, even with me, even though I was born 40 years after the war. In the Western popular imagination, particularly the American one, World War II is a conflict that we Americans won. But nowhere was the human cost as high as in the USSR, which suffered nearly half of all the conflict's casualties. More than 27 million Soviet citizens died during the war. That's 15% of the country's population, killed in just four years. Every family lost scores of people, whether it was fathers and sons or daughters killed on the battlefield, women and children who starved to death, or the 1.5 million Soviet Jews killed in the Holocaust. The Second World War for an American, you could have lost a relative. You could have lost 10 relatives, but the war was somewhere else, right? With the exception of Pearl Harbor, the war was something you went to and came home from. This is David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker and once a Moscow correspondent for The Washington Post. You know better than I do that if you walk down a typical street all over the former Soviet Union. There are plaques of a battle fought here on this corner. The memories are written into the soil. It's written into the blood. My father was born not long after the war. I was born in Moscow suburb in 1959. Yeah, 14 years after World War II just ended, yeah. As soon as you said what year you were born, you said how many years it was after the end of World War II. Why? It was such a huge trauma for the whole country, and it's kind of a big counting block for where you start your clock, because the country was destroyed. How did you hear about the war growing up? My father lost his older brother. He was missing in action. My grandmother, she was writing to him because the official letter said she was missing in action. And the hope was uh, that he's somewhere, and one day he will find his way home. She died in 1974, and still hoping. What my dad didn't mention is that his grandmother, Bronya, went looking for Samuel, her oldest son, in homes for wounded soldiers. 
In her diary, she wrote that she was worried that he was stranded somewhere without any limbs or memory, unable to get home. She just had to find him and rescue him. And when she knew her own death was approaching, she left her two surviving sons instructions for what to do if Samuel came home. He never did. The war was just as foundational to Putin's sense of himself. He was born closer to its conclusion, and his parents were active participants who barely made it through alive. So World War II came to the Soviet Union on June 22, 1941, with a uh, surprise attack of more than 3 million German and Axis Allied soldiers uh, who attacked before dawn on a Sunday, a day that was uh, extremely memorable for virtually any Soviet citizen um, at the time. Jochen Helbeck is a professor of Russian history at Rutgers University. Initially, Germany's attack took Stalin's breath away. In the days leading up to the war, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin received a constant stream of intelligence that Hitler was getting ready to invade the Soviet Union. He was told that hundreds of thousands of German soldiers were massing on the border, that they were stockpiling artillery and cutting the barbed wire on the Soviet border. German planes were flying reconnaissance missions deep into Soviet territory. One even flew as far as Moscow's Red Square. But Stalin was convinced that this was all a provocation, a false flag, to get him to negotiate with Hitler. By the time Stalin's advisors convinced him that the danger was real, and he gave orders to his generals to get ready to fight, it was 10 p.m. on the night before the invasion. Most of his troops, however, didn't get the message. German agents had already cut Soviet lines of communication. At four o'clock this morning, Hitler attacked and invaded Russia. Without declaration of war, the German bombs rained down from the sky upon the Russian cities. German troops poured across the border advancing rapidly in all directions, north, east, and south. The Soviet Air Force was obliterated as it sat on the ground. Soldiers, many of whom had been at their high school prom the night before the invasion, were sent into battle without guns or ammunition. They were just told to pick up the guns of the dead and keep going. Cities and towns fell, one after another. Minsk, Novgorod, Odessa were all captured that summer. Whole divisions were captured by the Germans, tens of thousands of soldiers at a time. Three weeks into the war, one in five Soviet soldiers was gone. In another four months, four million Soviet soldiers were dead or captured, and another million wounded. Civilians weren't spared either. The Germans torched villages as they advanced, waging a scorched earth campaign. My dad's mom remembers being a teenager in Zhytomyr, Ukraine and hiding in the reeds as German planes buzzed overhead that July, machine-gunning everyone below them. She remembered that they flew so low that she could see the pilots' faces. With one half the city taken, the Germans bring up a loudspeaker system, over which they warn the still-resisting Russian defenders that further resistance will mean death. In the towns and cities they captured, Germans began a campaign of terror. They killed all the Jews who couldn't flee, marching them into nearby forests, having them dig their own mass graves, and shooting them by the thousands in a matter of hours. People in the towns later remembered that the earth moved for days after these massacres. 
Anyone who had been tied to Soviet authority before the invasion met a similar fate. And everyone who remained lived under a brutal occupying force. There were orders that freed German soldiers from any kind of uh, military jurisdiction in the field. So they were basically given license and, in fact, ordered to kill any civilian who just looked the wrong way. And so the door was flung wide open for Germans to commit the worst imaginable horrors, all of that sanctioned. Some of Stalin's directives brought even more suffering to the Soviet troops. The smartest thing to do would have been to retreat, to save the troops, and then to to regroup. But Stalin uh, forbade his commanders from actually retreating and called traitors those who did. And should they render themselves into captivity alive, they would be branded traitors. And the stigma would even extend to their families. So ironically, actually, one of Stalin's own sons, Yakov Djukashvili, was captured alive by the Germans. And in a way, that stigma would have then extended to Stalin himself, but he quickly disavowed himself and essentially said, this is not my son. No matter what the cost in territory, no matter what the cost in life and human suffering, the Russian government, the Russian people, are determined to fight on to save their country from the Nazi invasion. When World War II broke out, Putin's father Vladimir volunteered and went to the front. His mother Maria stayed behind with their infant son, Putin's brother. Maria's brother moved them from the countryside outside of Leningrad and into the city proper, where he thought he could help Maria and her son. Instead, they ended up in one of the deadliest places in the country. Leningrad is the northern capital of Russia, of Soviet Union before that, and it's a city that gets, if I'm not mistaken, four sunny days a year. This is Andrew Rifkin, a Russian-American writer who grew up in St. Petersburg, formerly known as Leningrad. It's the most European city in Russia and also in the Soviet Union. Um, so it's, um, you know, it's, it's a beautiful place, but with a very very tough history, uh, like a history of violence. It's built on blood and bones because Peter the Great used serfs to build all these beautiful places. And when they died, they essentially just buried them at the construction site. So in that sense, the city is like a very large burial ground. When the Germans invaded in 1941, they turned the city into a burial ground again. This time, it was on a scale unparalleled in its horror, before or since. The siege of Leningrad was the deadliest siege in modern history. There were at least 800,000 civilian casualties, probably a million or more, during this siege that lasted for close to 900 days. The city was closed off. A tight ring was basically formed around Leningrad. And I believe that The plan from the very beginning was not to conquer Leningrad, but to actually suffocate it. This was basically the birthplace of Soviet communism in their imagination. And so they believe that this is a city of several million Bolsheviks that uh, should be given a particular fate. They should essentially starve 
to death. In addition to not allowing in any food or fuel, the German army regularly shelled the city. At the beginning of the siege, they purposely bombed Leningrad's grain and sugar silos. Starving Leningraders went to the sites anyway and tried to thaw the sugar that had been melted into the dirt by the heat of the blasts. Maria's brother helped her as much as he could, but he was soon transferred out of the city. Maria feared that she would not be able to care for her young son while working long wartime shifts, so she placed her baby in a children's shelter. He later died there of diphtheria. He was just shy of two years old. Maria nearly met a similar fate. This is from First Person, Putin's autobiography. Once my mother fainted from hunger. People thought she had died and they laid her out with the corpses. Luckily, Mama woke up in time and started mourning. By some miracle, she lived. When the rationing was at its worst, those who were non-working, the dependents, received 125 grams of bread. That's about three thin slices of bread per day. They would do anything just to to get um, a feeling of of satiation or just a a semblance of food. They would scrape off the wallpaper um, from uh, the walls of the apartment because there was some gelatin, the glue behind the wallpaper. They would scrape off the barks from trees. They would try to eat bells, fur coats. People would kill their pets. Even getting a, a coffin, you would have to trade a a bread ration against coffins, and people couldn't do that. Uh, But there are stories of cannibalism. There are stories of children being snatched from the street to be killed and eaten. A lot of what we know from the siege comes from the many diaries that people kept. There's one diary that really talks about a stomach war. She calls it in Russian, And she feels the stomach that she personifies as a, it's this, essentially this enemy subject that's taking over uh, of her life and her existence. So many Leningraders during the siege, they compare themselves to islanders. They, they also read Robinson Crusoe a lot and compare themselves to Robinson Crusoe. Uh, they say Leningrad is this island. And then they describe the Soviet Union as the mainland, that disconnection from this other life. In this hellscape, as people dropped dead mid-stride on the streets, Leningraders also wrote about their hunger for the thing that had set them apart from the rest of the country, their cultural and intellectual heritage. In August of 1942, composer Dmitry Shostakovich premiered his Seventh Symphony in Leningrad's Grand Philharmonic Hall, inside the besieged city. The musicians had to wear layers of clothing to keep their hunger-related shivers at bay. Loudspeakers carried the performance throughout the city, as well as to the German troops who lay siege to it. Sometime in summer 1941, Leningrad's radio broadcast the full length of War and Peace in, I think, 33 or 34 episodes. As people ran out of food, they started to consume books as a substitute. And the idea was always to see, am I measuring up to what these heroes are doing? Am I adequate to, you know, what Tolstoy is asking us to do? But there was only so much that art could do for starving Leningraders. The horror was inescapable. So Tanya Savicheva at the time was an 11-year-old girl. 
who uh, started writing her diary in, I believe, in November 1941. She lost her sister, her grandmother, her brother, an uncle, another uncle, and then finally her mother to hunger. And she records these deaths with the handwriting of a child uh, that actually, as hunger increasingly takes over, becomes increasingly hard to read. And the last words of the diary are the most famous words. She writes, the Savichevs have died. All are dead. Only Tanya has remained. And so these, these lines are very well known throughout post-Soviet space. In fact, Tanya herself survived. She was evacuated. However, she did not survive for long. She actually was technically blind. She suffered from scurvy. And so she died, I believe, in 1944 of the consequences of starvation. This was a story I grew up with, and Tanya Savicheva was like a Soviet Anne Frank to me. Even hearing Professor Helbeck recount Tanya's last diary entry, Tanya Astalasadna, made me choke up during our interview. That phrase had haunted me throughout my childhood. So the diary is, you know, one of these quintessential mementos of Leningrad alongside with the, the children's sled that so often was then used to transport the dead on the snow to the nearest cemetery, along with the piece of bread that is also so emblematic of the fate of Leningrad. And finally, there's the metronome, that TikTok machine that was on the radio that was invented before the war by radio engineers in the city. During the siege, authorities broadcast the tick of the metronome over the radio. It was to warn people of aerial attacks. The faster the ticking, the more imminent an air raid. But even in the absence of a bombardment, the metronome ticked steadily on. Its sound reassured people that the resistance was ongoing, that the heart of the city hadn't stopped beating. And it was perceived as essentially the pulse of the city, the connector to the city, that the people who are so isolated in their homes, that felt so isolated on this island of Leningrad needed to understand that somehow a larger organism was alive and they were part of this organism, even barely alive. And now a few words about the Russian civilians, and they deserve it. Years of deprivation have given these people their strength. If Soviet Russia had devoted its great industries to making creature comforts, the Russian people would have been happier, but they also would have been conquered. The Soviet Army Command put in many, many soldiers to try to break the siege throughout the year 1942. There were multiple attempts. These attacks were extremely costly in human lives, especially a place east of Leningrad, the Neva River Bend. In Russian, it's called Nevsky Pitachok. I believe the casualty count went into the six digits. So yes, this was a incredibly deadly spot in a very deadly environment altogether. I went there maybe 10 years ago. I visited it. It looks like a lunar landscape. It's um, just shot through with holes. Putin's father was sent to the Neva River Bend shortly after enlisting. In his autobiography, 
Putin recounts the story his father shared with him about being injured there by a German grenade. My father had already lost so much blood that it was clear he was going to die soon if they left him there. The nearest hospital was in the city, and in order to get there, they had to drag him all the way across the Neva. Everyone knew that this would be suicide, because every centimeter of that territory was being shot up. No commander would have issued such an order, of course, and nobody was volunteering. Coincidentally, a soldier who happened to be an old neighbor from back home came across him. Without a word, he sized up the situation, hauled my father up onto his back, and carried him across the frozen Neva to the other side. They made an idea target, and yet they survived. Finally, after 872 days, the Soviet army was able to break the siege on Leningrad. I imagine the whole world is ringing today with the great news that the siege of Leningrad is lifted. Inside the great northern city, as the whole world now knows, death by starvation stalked in every street and almost every home. So we're talking about almost two million people who died during the defense of Leningrad. This is clearly the greatest human catastrophe that any city has undergone in our human history. At some point during those 872 punishing days, Putin's parents, Vladimir and Maria, were miraculously reunited in a Leningrad hospital. It is a story that Putin has returned to again and again throughout his political career. My father managed to survive. He spent several months in the hospital. My mother found him there. Mama herself was half dead. My father saw the shape she was in and began to give her his own food, hiding it from the nurses. The doctors noticed that he was fainting from hunger. When they figured out why, they gave him a stern lecture and wouldn't let Mama in to see him for a while. The upshot was that they both survived. Only my father's injuries left him with a lifelong limp. Like hundreds of millions of other Soviets, this is a family that emerges deeply traumatized from the war. And in 1952, seven years after the end of the war, and after the death of their first two children, Maria and Vladimir give birth to a baby boy. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. His childhood in a city and a family shattered by war would shape the kind of person and what kind of leader he would become. About a Boy, the story of Vladimir Putin is written and hosted by me, Julia Yaffe, directed by Valerie Thomas, produced by Margot Gray, edited by Chris Basil, mixing and mastering also by Chris Basil, production assistance by Bill Schultz, theme music by Kravastok. Special thanks to John Kelly, Ben Landy, Andrew Rifkin, Alex Bigler, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Moura Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schuff. Listen and follow About a Boy, The Story of Vladimir Putin, an Odyssey original podcast in partnership with Puck on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.